Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Bad on Paper Podcast. I'm Becca Freeman. And I'm Olivia Mentor. And we're so excited because we have Jen Weiner with us today, who is talking all about her illustrious career as an author and her many best-selling books, including the recently released New York Times bestseller, The Summer Place. But we're also talking about body diversity in beach reads. And we had such an interesting conversation that I can't wait to share with you. I love this one. And as a plus-size person existing in the world, as a writer, she has inspired me so much. So I, uh, yeah, I loved it. But before we get into that, let's let's do some highs and lows. Yes. Becca, I want to hear about lobster. Tell me all about your lobster life. I am on week one of two in Maine. It is part a vacation, part not. So I was in Agunquit for five days with my aunt, kind of on vacation. And my aunt lives in Arizona. We're originally from Connecticut. And so she was just on a mission to eat as much lobster as possible. So I truly ate. I think I ate lobster. What's the tally? What's the tally? Oh, Give I don't us the know. lobster count. I don't know. But there were definitely a few days where I had lobster for lunch and dinner. Like I had a lobster roll and then I had like lobster pasta or like a, a steamed lobster. So had a lot of lobster, which was great. I love lobster. I just love Maine. It's like... Say lobster one more time. <laughs> lobster. <laughs> I love Maine. It's like... So, I don't know what the right word is. Cozy? Not fancy. I don't know. It's it's like, I, yeah, I feel like it has a warmth to it. Yeah. Which, speaking of listeners, I, I wish you could see Becca. She is in a wooden lofted area with a fireplace in the background. Mm-hmm. It looks like a, like a Scandinavian mansion sort I'm, of situation. I'm in... I'm on the inside of a log cabin. So now I'm, I went up north and I'm staying with friends of mine for a week and a half. And I don't know, it just feels really good to be out of the city, partially because it's been so hot in the city, but also just to get a change of scenery. I've been trying to write while I'm up here and, you know, I've written by the pool a couple of days yesterday, like sat out in an Adirondack chair in the yard and I was writing and it just, it feels really nice to get a change of pace. Yeah. I love that for you. Tell me yours. What's your high? My high is something very small, but since I've been back from traveling, I've tried to get more into cooking new recipes. So for a while, like during the pandemic, I was experimenting with different recipes and cookbooks every week. And then for the past maybe six months or so, I've been more just trying to save as much money as possible. So doing really basic recipes, which is fine. But this week, I've really tried a new recipe like every night, lots of salads. I made um, a mango cucumber salad by what's I think it's what's Gobby cooking. For some reason, her name is Gobby and not Gabby. And it always throws me off. But anyway. I did not know that. When you were hesitating, I was like, Gabby, it says it in the outlet. It's what's Gabby cooking. I could be making this up because it seems fake, but she's friends with Mandy Moore. And I she heard is. Mandy Moore say Gobby. And I was hmm. like, either you are just hmm. you have a weird nickname for her or anyway, someone will correct me if I'm wrong. So, but I've been enjoying that. So it's been it's been nice. Oh, nice. On semi-related, I saved this recipe from the New York Times cooking that they had on their Instagram yesterday that was a smashed pickle salad. I'm dying to try. I it. saved it too. Oh my god. I saved it too. It looked so good. So I think if I do come to Philly in two weeks to record, we should have smashed pickle salad. Let's do it. I've just signed you up to make me smashed pickle salad. I'll make some lobster, too. Oh, my God. Throw in a little lobster. Great. (laughs) I'm I'm in a really weird mood. (laughs) What about lows? So it's kind of not a low. It's a challenge. I'll say that. But 
for some reason when we were traveling, not watching TV a lot, Jake and I were like, we should try to stop watching TV on weeknights because we were in this habit of end work, make dinner, sit on the couch with dinner, watch TV for, you know, whatever, two or three hours. And I feel like it just never felt that great to me. So we're trying to not watch TV after work on weeknights, like Monday through Thursday. Okay. How's it going? It's uncomfortable at first because it's really like ingrained into me that like, okay, you know, work, TV, brain off. But I've been trying, I've done adult coloring books. I'm, I'm scrapbooking. I've been reading a little bit more. We've been talking a lot more, sitting at the table for dinner, which I feel like is nice and refreshing. But it's definitely a challenge because my brain is trained now to like turn off at 6 p.m. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm enjoying it so far. But it's definitely a different experience. This feels like a pretty, a pretty high low. This sounds good to me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm in a really good mood. I'm just enjoying being back in like a little routine and just being boring. And yeah, (laughs) that's nice. (laughs) What is your low? Well, I feel like your low is kind of good too. uh, So you're relaxing. No, I'm stressing about it. So unsurprisingly, I'm not getting as much writing done on vacay as I thought. So I, in my head, planned out how productive I was going to be, which of course, in my head, I was going to be so productive and then haven't been because I want to read my book. I want to lay by the pool. And also, I feel like I'm with other people. So I feel rude to just like go into my my own bubble to write. So I've gotten less writing done than I have to. And I'm on a soft deadline right now. So I think having deadlines will help. So with my agent, we we decided that I was going to finish this round of edits by September 6th, which is the day after Labor Day. And so I just want to stay on track to the plan we made. So I'm not off track, but I've when you have the best intentions and you're like, I'm going to be so productive. And then you're like, yeah, that was, why did I think that? Every time I go anywhere, this is the situation I'm in. So I totally get it. But on the plus side, your hair looks incredible. I've already Thank told you, so you this. Much. I need to tell you again. It literally looks like Belle in Beauty and the Beast. It's that main water. It's, I mean, something is working for you. So it's that main that. water and the suave shampoo that I used that was in the shower. <laughs> Sometimes that's all you need. There we go. Let's get into the interview. Jennifer Weiner is the number one New York Times bestselling author of 19 books, including That Summer, Big Summer, Mrs. Everything, Good in Bed, and an essay collection, Hungry Heart, Adventures in Life, Love, and Writing. A graduate of Princeton University and a frequent contributor to the New York Times opinion section, Jennifer lives with her family in Philadelphia. Welcome. We're so happy to have you with us today. I'm so happy to be here. We're so happy to to have you because we're both very big fans of your books, but we're also really excited to talk about body diversity in beach reads, which is something that I feel like you have been at the forefront of and pioneering for years and years before this was even a conversation that people were having. Yes. Before it was a thing, I was making it a thing. Yes. <laughs> thank God. Honestly, thank God. Oh, you know, so somebody's got to be out there, you know, ranting and screaming and acting like a crazy person. Um, You know, and it it really is true that saying like, first, they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they do something else to you, then you win. It's true. And, you know, I just sadly had to be at the forefront of them um, laughing at you. And I think if you're a woman, that third thing is generally call you hysterical and crazy. Oh, yeah. So that too. That feels right. 
But before we get into that conversation, for people who may be newer to your work, can you give us the Cliff's notes on your career and your journey to becoming a best-selling author multiple times over? Okay, so once upon a time, there was a an extremely nerdy bookworm girl who dreamed of becoming an author. Basically, as soon as she realized that people who wrote books were actually like living people who walked among us and that that was a job that you could have. So I grew up in a, in a very preppy, waspy town in Connecticut. I was a total bookworm. I was an English major in college because that was the major where you got to read all of the books. I graduated in 1991 and I learned that nobody hires aspiring novelists and like pays them to hang out and write their first book. I I went to each of my parents and asked them if they'd be interested in becoming a patron of the arts and supporting me for several years so I could go live in like an attic in Paris and like write a novel about their divorce and how it messed me up. And they both... (laughs) Oh my God, I love that. What a tempting offer. (laughs) Yes, I... I, You know, they, they were so spectacularly divorced at that point and not speaking to each other. I think it was the only thing that they'd agreed on since the dissolution of their marriage is that they would not be supporting me while I wrote a book. So I had to find a job. I had to find a paying job. And the two things I could think of that would pay me to write were journalism and advertising. And I decided I didn't want to go into advertising because I I was somehow convinced that I'd end up on like the tampon campaign. Like that would be my job, spending years of my life thinking of synonyms for the word absorbent. And I just did not want to do that. And so I became a newspaper reporter and I worked as a journalist for almost 10 years, small newspaper, medium-sized newspaper, large newspaper, which is a thing you could do in the 90s when there were a lot of newspapers and they would hire liberal arts majors who hadn't necessarily been journalism majors and sort of let them learn on the job. And then I had this guy break my heart. I got dumped very spectacularly. You know, I was 28 years old and I thought I was going to marry him and I thought we'd be together forever. And I was like, naming our children and picking out the china powdered in my head. And then we broke up and I was devastated. And I spent six months moping around and being pathetic and singing my heart will go on because this all happened like around the time Titanic was out. And then I was like, but now I have my novel. And I wrote a book about a girl who was a lot like me and a guy who was a lot like Satan. And I gave the girl all of my body anxieties and family dysfunction and, you know, the the Jewishness and the Philadelphia-ness and all that stuff. And that was my first book, Good in Bed, which came out in 2001. And, And they tell authors that like the happiest day of your life is when you get to go home and tell your parents that someone is publishing your book. And I can only assume that this is true for every author whose book is not called Good in Bed. (laughs) my mother and i had a very different conversation than than those other authors i can only assume and so after that i you just kept publishing for forever publishing (laughs) i could not be stopped yeah so i signed a two-book deal with good and bad and when you sell fiction as a debut author, you can't just go in with like a good idea and three sample chapters. You have to have the whole book completed. And I remember sort of talking to my agent about 
who was going to end up publishing me and thinking about people who were interested not just in that one book, but were interested in sort of me as a career author and how they were going to support me and the kind of stories that I wanted to tell. And I've just been incredibly, incredibly fortunate. My first book was a bestseller. And and that is a very rare and very wonderful thing that I in no way take for granted to write something that resonates with lots and lots of readers. And honestly, when we were out making the rounds with Good in Bed and taking meetings with publishers and with editors. And they were saying, oh, you know, we we think this book is is going to be huge. And then they'd be like, no pun intended. And then they'd say like, we think there's just an enormous audience for people who want to read about a plus size woman. No pun intended. I'm like, guys, it, it's... <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Honestly, I I was convinced that there would be 12 people who would buy the book and I'd be related to six of them. And I would know the other six from Weight Watchers. Like that was how I thought it was going to go down. And I was very surprised and very gratified and, and also a little bit sad too, when so many women are just like, you know, that character is me. And I'm like, that character is miserable. And she's me, by the way, she's not you, she's me, but you know, um, I was very, very glad that I had really early on, I, I had an editor and an agent and a publisher who had a vision for me and were willing to support me and let me tell the stories that I wanted to tell. So I actually, the first book I read of yours was Big Summer, which if oh, those, wow. <laughs> I know, I know I'm a little late to the game, but That's okay. for those who don't know, it centers around a character named Daphne, who is a plus size influencer, which I could relate to because that's kind of what I do on the side as well. And there's like a mystery and there's like some steamy romance. But for me, it was so impactful because it was the first book I had read that I realized I was reading a sex scene from the perspective of a curvier woman. And since then I've realized, oh, you've been doing this for years. When you started writing, like, were you always like, okay, I'm going to feature characters who have diverse body types or did just happen naturally? I I think both. I mean, I think it was a conscious decision and it was also write what you know, and it was also write what you want to read. There's this quote from Toni Morrison that I always go back to. And she said, if there's a book you need to read and it isn't on the shelf, it is your job to write that book. And I thought a lot about the books that I really wished had been there when I was a teenager and when I was a young woman and when I was going through this breakup because I had never seen plus-sized bodies in fiction represented as anything other than a punchline or a problem to be solved. There was a novel that came out right around the same time as Good in Bed did. I think it was like a year before. It was a a British book. And there was like this beautiful curvy body on the cover. And granted, it was only a curvy body from like the waistline to the ankle. So like you never got to see faces back then on book covers. But I'm like, OMG, like a plus size protagonist. This is fantastic. And unfortunately, it was a story about a woman who has to basically magically lose a hundred pounds in three months before anything good happens to her. Like she is like a doormat 
And it's just one terrible, borderline, abusive, humiliating thing after another until she loses weight. And then she gets the prince and then she gets the job and then she gets the the promotion and the mansion and this and that. And it just, you know, that was all there ever was. There were women who lost tons of weight at which point good things would happen to them. It was sort of, they were the ugly ducklings who had to become the swans or they were the sassy best friend, the sassy sexless best friend whose job it was to kind of pump up the main character and then fade into the background. And, you know, I was just thinking like, I would love to read a book where it, it sort of looks more like life as I know it, where there are women living in larger bodies who are not constantly trying to change themselves and who seem to be just fine and seem to be getting married and doing well in their jobs and having families and having friends and all the things that that you want. So, you know, I, I felt both like it was something that came very naturally, but also felt a little bit like a mission. Yeah. You know, you don't realize that like the default is a thin character, even as someone who who is like a size 14, 16, who has bigger. I've when I write, I found myself writing the character who I've pictured to be plus size and my mind defaults to it being a thinner person, which, of course, <laughs> that's a lot to unpack in therapy. But it's you don't realize how much that is the default until you read something else. And that's why I find it so impactful and so important. I remember, Olivia, when you were reading Linda Holmes's newest book, you were so beside yourself because it was mentioned that she was plus size, but then that was it. Like, that wasn't a plot line that she was trying to lose weight. It wasn't, you know, it didn't really factor in. It was just like, oh, this is a detail about her. And that's so interesting because you're you're right. You don't really see that. Yeah. Your your mind just fills in the blanks. And that's what we do as society. And it's (laughs) harmful. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's erasure is what it is. And that ends up mattering if you never see yourself. And growing up, it was like, it was such a rare thing to see a plus size character, even in a book. And it just never happened on TV or in the movies, unless that person was there for comic relief. So, you know, and, and that I'm sure took a, a psychic toll on me when I was growing up in the eighties and the nineties. I just always think about leaving things a little better than when I found them. And the idea that like, there are always going to be teenage girls who are looking to see themselves in pop culture, whether that's in the magazines or in fiction or in movies or in reality shows or in scripted shows, like they're everyone wants to see themselves as the hero or the protagonist or the love interest. And if I can help fill in some of those blanks, you know, that's a good thing to do. Yeah. Everyone deserves that for sure. Everyone does. Yeah. I want to talk about the covers. So we were reading a Lit Hub article where you were talking about your book covers and Mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you said that it wasn't until 2019 that you got exactly what you wanted in terms of featuring a visibly plus size woman on the cover. Can you talk a little bit about that process and how it's evolved over time? I would write books with plus size protagonists and I would get book covers with skinny women. And I would say, who even is this supposed to be? And there would, there would be no answer. And this was also the era where you only saw parts of bodies 
and you never saw women's faces. So there would be like a woman like from like the top of her head to like the top of her waist, like sitting at a desk from behind. Who was she supposed to be? I was never sure. And it was super aggravating. And it was one of those things where like, if I was self-publishing and if I was the one making all of the choices about what everything was going to look like, I would have put plus size women on the cover from the beginning. But I think that my publisher felt like there was a willingness to read about plus size people, but maybe not a willingness to see them. And, And that was that went on for years and it wasn't just me. It was, there'd be romance novels, there'd be, you know, commercial fiction, like all kinds of books. And it was thin women, thin women, thin women. And I don't know what finally convinced them to change. Um, you know, certainly I was giving them an earful, but I don't think that I, I, I do not kid myself that I alone am influential enough to change it. But finally with Mrs. Everything, in 2019, they put, it was an illustration. So they got away from like using photographic covers. It was an illustration and the women actually looked like the size I had imagined. And like, I, I, you know, I think I just like fell on the floor. I was like, I can't believe it. And I was so glad. And I really, really hope that we're not ever going to go back to like the bad old days of the character is described very specifically as looking one way. And then when you see the representation of that character on the cover, it's something totally other than that. Yeah. Talk about erasure. <laughs> like When you read the book, you're like, oh, well, actually, uh, my body type still isn't worthy of being actually depicted visually. So Yeah. And gosh. then there'd be like um, my third book, was was called Little Earthquakes. And it was the cover of that was like a woman with her arm across her face, kind of like that. And the arm was too thin. And I'm like, could, could we just like digitally like make it a little bigger? And like, I'm just going back and forth as they're like photoshopping like millimeters of flesh onto this arm. And even with the cover of Big Summer, the body was curvy, but the arm for the hardcover was very thin, which I didn't even realize. Like, you know, it's one of these things where you're so conditioned to seeing things one way that it did not even strike me that that arm was completely the wrong size until like I actually put on like a sun hat and a bathing suit and like did this like cutesy little oh I'm gonna recreate the pose and then I recreate the pose I'm like wait there's something not matching here and then I'm like oh yeah her her arm is like a strand of spaghetti like we gotta (laughs) fix this and they did you know get to give them credit they did they went back and redid the cover for the paperback and for the reprints so yay what do you think obviously you've seen the covers evolve you've seen the industry evolve What do you think is the single biggest change you've seen in terms of body diversity in publishing and books over the course of your whole career? Well, okay. So publishing follows trends like every other thing, you know, movies, music, television shows. If something hits, you're going to see more of it, whether it's vampires or plus size characters. And so after Good in Bed did well, there was this like tiny little boomlet of other books with plus size protagonists, other kind of chiclet, which is what they were calling it back then, 
books that had larger characters. I remember they called those books, um, everyone is sitting down, nobody is drinking or eating anything because this is a spit take moment. They called them chunk lit. Like, no. Wow. Hand to God. You can Google this. This happened. Chunk lit. Oh my God. Right? I'm just like, I just, you know, kill me, kill me now. So yes, chunk lit. And so then there was, like I said, this, this tiny little boom lit, and then that kind of stopped happening. But I think gradually, slowly but surely, there's been more acceptance. There's been more inclusion. There's been more authors writing, not just diverse bodies, but racial diversity, ethnic diversity, religious diversity. And I think that as those books succeed, there have been more and more and more of them. And so it's no longer that the the default is always white and thin, because now it's like you can pick up a romance novel where the protagonist is Asian or Hispanic or plus size or biracial. And that's the other thing that I've seen, not change yet, but at least a growing awareness that publishing is not only very white, but it it privileges people who have enough money to take these ridiculously paltry entry-level salaries that nobody can survive on in New York City. I think that publishers now have some more awareness of sort of inclusion, diversity, stuff like that. And they're increasing the entry-level salaries, recognizing that if they want to attract people who aren't generationally wealthy white women who have traditionally filled those jobs, they're going to have to pay people wages they can live on. People who can't go to mom and dad and ask them to tap into their trust fund. So that's a change I've seen. Absolutely. And I'm curious if you're able to share with us, what are the battles that you're still fighting with, with your <laughs> publisher, with the industry? Like you, you're writing about plus size characters, you have them on the cover. Are there areas that you want to push the envelope further? I'm always really interested in the way that women's fiction gets labeled. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So like I, when I started, it was chiclet and then I got old and then it was, you know, they called it domestic fiction, commercial fiction, women's fiction. There's no men's fiction, which is interesting to note. That's just fiction. Domestic fiction, God, what else? Just, you know, every kind of label. And it seems like there is such a, reflexive disdain for popular books and particularly books that are popular among women and extra particularly books that are popular among young women. I'm thinking in particular, there was a piece about Colleen Hoover's books that ran last week and it was like scathing and it was just like, oh yeah, you you can look that up too. And it's this author who 10 years ago wrote something utterly scathing about me. And then a couple of years ago wrote something utterly scathing about Ellen Hildebrand. And I'm just thinking like, is anybody noticing that this critic doesn't write this way about Stephen King or Mm. Dan Brown or John Grisham or any of the men who are like mega popular? Like it's just women. And 
you know, I, I think that it's just really, really easy to sort of take shots at stuff that women like and to sort of say, like, that's not real literature or that's not quality television or that's not prestige drama or whatever qualifiers we're using. I still think that it's such an uphill battle for women. I think if a man writes a book, there's sort of a presumption that it's literature. And if a woman <laughs> writes a book, it's like you've got to show that it's not it's not romance. It's not young adult. It's not new adult. It's not, it's not this, it's not that. It's just a book. It's just, you know, it's, it's a lot harder, I think, to get your work respected, honestly. And so that is something that I will probably be fighting until, until the day they pry my cold dead fingers off my keyboard. (laughs) God, I'm glad. I feel like we've elevated the art form of the superhero movie that we're getting 974 of those a year. And it's like, why do we take that seriously? And then, you know, something something else is called a beach read and it's it's like portrayed as fluffy even though you know to me those are the things that I'm talking about with my friends on a daily basis Mm -hmm. just because Mm -hmm. nobody's violently dying Mm -hmm. or even if somebody is even if somebody is but like we take it less seriously yeah yeah I I just I you know it's the idea that men do art and women do crafts and taken us like a long long time to sort of like look at something like quilting and say no there's like real art and real skill and real vision happening here because for a while it was just like oh that's the thing you sleep under you know like where's the art in that yeah so yeah I mean I I think it's there's a billion reasons why it is this way and it's going to take a long time to change it. And I think that if I can be part of sort of an incremental rethinking of the way we talk about women's stories and the people who write them and the women who consume them, I think that is what I am here for. I love that so much. Let's take an ad break. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. If you know me, then you know that I love my therapist and therapy in general, but I think an important thing to know about me as well is that I had unbelievable anxiety about finding a therapist and talking to a therapist before I found someone who is the right fit. I can vividly remember spending like an hour in the shower just talking out loud alone through what I wanted to communicate to the therapist before our first phone call. I was so scared that I wouldn't be able to express myself well or the therapist would be judgmental. I had anxiety about talking on the phone too, which didn't help. This is why I love BetterHelp. It's customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with therapists. Plus, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. BetterHelp makes it easy to find a therapist who is specifically skilled in talking about the issues that are most important to you. And contrary to popular belief, nothing has to be wrong in order to see a therapist. Whether you're dealing with trauma or just day-to-day stressors, regular therapy is one of the best ways to take care of your brain each and every week. Maybe you already have a regular exercise routine on lock, or you finally found hobbies that help you unwind after a stressful day at work. Either way, you probably know now how much prioritizing yourself can change your life for the better. Adding regular sessions with a BetterHelp therapist to your life can be one more thing that helps you feel like your most calm, relaxed, and confident self. And honestly, who doesn't want that? If the idea of having dedicated time to focus on yourself regularly sounds good to you, try booking a session with a therapist on BetterHelp today. 
our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash bad on paper. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash bad on paper. Switching gears to talk about your newest book, The Summer Place, which I just read. I flew through it. So going back a little bit, after so many books, how exactly do you choose a topic? Like, I feel like it must be so difficult. How, how do you go about that? Well, it's, God, it's just what is speaking to me at that moment in my life. What is interesting me? What is the thing that I'm thinking about? So when I wrote The Summer Place, we were coming out of COVID, sort of, kind of. It was, you know, we've been through the quarantines, we've been through the shelter at home, we've been through the shutdowns, and everybody was just sort of like, you know, gradually like sticking their heads out of the foxholes and and figuring out how do we live now? Like what's changed? What hasn't? How do we interact with each other? And you know, one of the things I was thinking about a lot was the way that COVID kind of exposed the ongoing domestic inequities of who was doing the labor of running a house. I had read this article in the Times, and when I described the pictures, if you saw this, you will remember them. It was a story about all of the women who sort of got forced out of the workplace because they were at home, their kids were at home, and they found themselves sort of like managing their children more than they were able to do their jobs. And it was this picture of a woman, and she had a basket of laundry on her hip. She had a baby in her other arm. She had her phone tucked under her shoulder because she was on a conference call, you know, trying to do laundry and sue the child and do her job. And on the opposite page, there was a shot of her husband and he was in a home office with the door shut. And presumably it was nice and quiet and there was no baby and there was no laundry. And so I was just thinking a lot about women and ambition and careers versus motherhood and why that's still a choice why that's still in either or so often when for men, it's a both and. That was what I was thinking about when I wrote The Summer Place. And, and you know, also losing my mom and sort of realizing that I'm the matriarch of my family now. And, and how does that passing of the torch feel? Because that I think is a, is a very universal thing. Like that moment where you realize like, oh God, like I'm the grown up now. Like how did that even happen? Totally. Can you can you give folks the elevator pitch for the summer place? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So the summer place is about three generations of a family and all of the secrets they are keeping that are possibly going to be exposed as a wedding on Cape Cod draws nearer. So everyone in this family has done something wrong or they're keeping some secret or there's something big they haven't told their partner or their parents or their children or somebody. And it's all about to hit the fan. It's very juicy. It is very juicy. It's a lot of drama. I loved it. Thank you. I'm about halfway through and I'm loving it. And I I specifically love kind of the multi-POV way that it's written. So you're getting to hear from multiple people who all know something that the other people don't know. It's so juicy. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I I wanted something light and I wanted something fun, but I also like this, this is usually how it goes for me. I want something, you know, fun and dramatic and, and juicy and page turning and then some issue or some big kind of social 
problem will end up just like weaving its way in there. For example, the book that I'm working on now is about a bunch of people on a bike trip. There's going to be this romance and there's this mother and daughter and they don't get along and they're fighting. And as I'm writing this, the Supreme Court reverses Roe versus Wade. The country is thrown into turmoil. 11 states pass these trigger laws. A mother and daughter in Texas get arrested after prosecutors subpoena their Facebook DMs and find out that they were discussing how to get this young woman a medical abortion. You know, it feels like the world has just been lit on fire. And I have two teenage daughters. So obviously that sort of jumped right to the forefront of my brain. And so now this book that started off as like this jaunt and this journey and like fun and jolly and good times, it's it's now it's now got this very serious underpinning as we learn that there are people on this trip who have very specific reasons for wanting to spend two weeks biking in a blue state. Very interesting. That's life, right? (laughs) You know, the everyday with those dramatic moments and important things. By the way, for those that don't know, Jennifer is like, I follow you on Instagram, so I know this. You're like an incredible cyclist. I have signed on Instagram and she's like, I'm biking like 950 miles today. Like It's really impressive. And of course, you also post about very serious social issues, which I very much appreciate. But anyway, just really cool. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's funny because like I, I post about biking, which I love to do and I highly recommend. And I ride at the Bicycle Club in Philadelphia. If you ever want to come out for a ride, they have rides like every Sunday. They meet at the Art Museum. You can go online. But a lot of people, when I do the biking post, they're like, there's two things that happen. Somebody will always post like, I started riding my bike because I saw you doing it. And that makes me so happy and so proud. And I'm just like, yes, I am. I am fulfilling my function in the world. And then somebody's like, are you ever going to write a novel about a bike trip? And so now I can say, yes, I'm, I'm doing that too. So, and biking is great. Any kind of physical activity is great for writers. I think there's something about repetitive motion, whether it's walking or running or swimming or biking that sort of puts my brain in a state where the ideas can come. So it it helps. It helps the writing. So going back to the summer place and the, the social issue that's underpinning this book, which is COVID, I'm curious, how did that feel to kind of really entrench yourself in that, first of all, as, as the writer? But then also I'm curious what the reaction has been from readers, because I feel like we're in an interesting time where mm-hmm. some some writers want to embrace this and some readers want to embrace this and others are like, I want to pretend this didn't happen. Yes, which I completely sympathize with. When I started writing, I I was very clear with myself. Like I did not want to write like a quote unquote COVID novel. I did not want to like throw everybody back to like the darkest, scariest days where we didn't know what was happening. We didn't know what to do about it. And it was just terrifying. You know, we didn't know how long it would last. We we didn't know anything. Like, I wanted to be clear that, like, the book is set at a point where we know much more, where the vaccines exist, where that corner has been turned. But I I didn't want to just pretend it wasn't happening for a couple of reasons. Like, one, I sort of felt like it was cheating. Like, that would be taking the easy way out. Like, just to be like, it's this magical 2021 where everything is the same except for that. Like, that just felt like a way of letting myself off the hook. Um, and like I said, I think that COVID, it, 
when all of these families ended up at home together, living on top of each other, and wives are suddenly learning things about their husbands. Like I have a really good friend who's just like, you know, she, we, we met for coffee and she sits down and she just looks completely shell-shocked. I'm like, what happened? She's like, my husband is a circle back guy. Like I heard him say like, okay, Ron, and we'll just circle back to that. And she's like, I didn't know I had married a circle back guy. You know, so it's like, I mean, my husband wore these like orthotic flip-flops and they were like the loudest fucking flip-flops in like the history of flip-flops. And I wanted to like set them on fire. And I'm sure I was doing things that made him want to set me on fire. And, you know, it's like, I think parents saw their children differently. I think children saw their parents differently. I think spouses saw each other differently. And, and there was funny stuff that happened also because of all of that proximity. So I thought that like COVID like gave me some really interesting material that I wanted to kind of dig into. And I'm sure that there are readers who just wanted no part of it. And that's fine. I mean, not every book is for every person. I'm, I completely understand, like, especially people who've lost someone to COVID. I, I totally get that they don't want to read a book where it's like, you know, ha ha, a guy's, you know, has redefined safe sex is like, we leave our masks on or whatever. Like, I get it. I do. Well, as someone who was a bit hesitant to read about anything having to do with COVID, I really enjoyed it. So I will give that piece of feedback to to readers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I didn't want it to be too heavy, but I did sort of feel it was important that it was there. I feel like it's, it's cathartic to read about it in some ways where I don't want to read every book about COVID, but you know, it's like we, we have this collective trauma that we we all haven't processed. And so to hear about other people's experiences and, and to like connect to those and also to like see them processing how they're working through COVID, I think is something that I like more than I expected to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jody Picot wrote like a true oh my God. COVID novel, right? And, and I was just like, there is no way I'm going to make my way through this. And I loved it. I, I mean, loved like, it. The twist that she pulled off, like my jaw hit the floor. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, and it's funny. And then like the New York Times did this roundup of like novelists grappling with COVID. And they mentioned like five different people and they completely ignored Jody's book, which was on the bestseller list at the mm-hmm. time. I'm like, guys, like, hello, <laughs> what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Well, before we let you go, we have three quick questions for you to wrap things up. Olivia, I'll let you take the first one because it's a Philly question. Okay, yes. What are your favorite Philly bookstores? I get this question all the time. Ah. Please share. Yes. Okay. Well, Philadelphia is wonderful. We have a lot of great, really great independent bookstores. So, of course, I will shout out Head House Books, which is on South 2nd Street. It is like literally right around the corner from me. They're the people who handle my signed books. So if you want like a signed personalized book, like get with them. They will hook you up. I will go down there and sign your book for you. It's the cutest store ever. It is the cutest store. It is like being in like the living room of your friend who has like the best taste in books. Like you just want to stay there forever. It's wonderful. Um, We also have two really, really outstanding black owned bookstores. There's Harriet's in Fishtown and Uncle Bobby's in Germantown. And if you want to support black businesses, which we should all be doing, those are both great places to shop. And again, like fantastic curation, wonderful vibes, like they're both just like great places to be. You feel really good just like walking through the doors there. So, and then like, 
I mean, it's funny. The first reading I ever did was for Good and Bed, and it was at the Borders on Walnut Street when Borders was a thing. And it's, rest in peace, Borders. Yes, I know. Rest R.I.P. Right. Poor, poor little off the Borders. But like, you know, um, there's a really lovely Barnes and Noble on Walnut Street that also has like great places to sit and read and sort of look out of Rittenhouse Square. Shakespeare and Company was on Walnut Street, and they closed, but hope they're looking for a new space. So hopefully we'll have them back soon. And then there's like just great used bookstores. There's the Book Trader on Bainbridge Street, which is just like this rambling cavern of books. And you can find everything there, including sheet music. Like I've actually found some piano books there, which is really nice. Oh, how cool. Yeah. The other thing we can't let you get away without telling us, we need to know from every reader or writer, what are some books that you've read lately and loved? Oh my gosh. Okay. So Jillian Medoff, M-E-D-O-F-F, has a new book out called When We Were Bright and Beautiful, which if you liked Gone Girl, um, sold. You like, yes, right. <laughs> it's it's sort of Gone Girl meets Zoe Heller meets a little We Need to Talk About Kevin, like unreliable narrator, family drama, big twist, all of that. Yeah, that was a good one. I, Jody Paco is fantastic. And if you haven't read Wish You Were Here, I think that is a great one. Akweke Amazes, You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty, which I can't break here because I always get the title wrong. I mean, if you want something like steamy to read on the beach, this is fantastic. This is our book club book this month. So you hear it here first that Jennifer Weiner supports this this choice as well. (laughs) It's fantastic. It's fantastic. I really like it. And if you haven't read American Wife, um, which is by Curtis Sittenfeld. It's my favorite. She wrote Prep, which is the one everybody knows of. But American Wife is my favorite book of hers. And it's sort of a fictional reimagining of Laura Bush's life. Like, what if this nice, quiet, um, quietly liberal librarian with a tragedy in her past ends up married to the president? What happens? It's wonderful. So that's an oldie but a goodie. Oh, that sounds... That sounds great. Thank you for those. All right. Final, final. Where can people find you, follow you, buy your books, all of that? Okay. I'm, I'm everywhere, basically. Like- <laughs> You're great on TikTok, too. You're great on TikTok. <laughs> I, I just want to shout out your TikTok. I joined TikTok because my then 13-year-old daughter wanted to be on TikTok. And I said, you can be on TikTok, but I'm going to follow you and I'm going to see every single thing you post. And she agreed to that. Lord love her. Um, And then I, God, they sucked me in. They like (laughs) seduced me. It's how they do it. That's how they get you, right? But I, TikTok right now feels like what Twitter felt like in like 2010. It's fun and supportive. And yes, there's toxicity and pile-ons and awful stuff. But for right now, at least people are doing incredibly creative stuff. So I'm on TikTok at Jen Weiner writes. I'm on Instagram at Jennifer Weiner writes because somebody else took at Jennifer Weiner and, and would not give it to me and like tried to hold it for ransom and wanted like thousands of dollars. I was like, no, no, you can, uh, you can be Jennifer Weiner. That's fine. <laughs> um, and I'm at Jennifer Weiner on, on Twitter. I'm at Jennifer Weiner on Facebook and my website is jenniferweiner.com. And go pick up her book, The Summer Place, and there are signed copies at, remind me the name of the Philly bookstore? 
Headhouse Books. Headhouse Books. Shall we get into some end matter? Yes. Tell me about your obsession this week. So I am not a huge jewelry wearer. And I feel like I have jewelry PTSD after working at Bobble Bar for three years, where I wore so much (laughs) statement jewelry that then when I left, I didn't want to wear any jewelry. And I am loving the layered necklace trend. I don't know. I just feel like jewelry is really fun right now. Like it went through a phase where it was a little boring and it was just like really delicate gold things. But now I feel like it's fun again. On Wednesday, I spent the day in Portland with my friend Molly. We got a hotel room for the night and and we had like a fun dinner reservation. We just we had nothing to do. We were just kicking around during the day. And we we happened to go into an anthropology and I made myself this bracelet stack. It's three bracelets. It's this like heart-shaped kind of like opal bracelet. There's a rainbow tennis bracelet. And then there's like a plastic tile bracelet that kind of looks like a Roxanne Asseline bracelet. And it is bringing me unlimited joy. It's making me so happy. It's very cute. I think you called it an arm party in your uh, Instagram post, which as I messaged you, sent me hurtling through time and space yes. because I remember those of the blogger days. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I feel like Man Repeller was really instrumental in the arm party. Oh, Man Repeller. Gosh. Jeez, yeah. Now I'm really getting nostalgic, but I like it. Jewelry is fun right now. It is really fun. So I'm really into my bracelet stack. I feel like I need one plain gold bracelet to complement it. And I feel like this is just going to be like my everyday bracelet stack because it's rainbow. So it matches everything. I love it. I hope you keep adding to it. What about you? What's your obsession? My obsession is this essay slash like advice column from Dear Sugar by Cheryl Strayed, who wrote Wild, but it's a famous column, obviously. But someone, a listener actually sent me this one. It's called The Ghost Ship That Didn't Carry Us. And she was like, I listened to the podcast last week and you were talking about sort of making big decisions and, you know, being scared about having kids and making the wrong decision and choosing one life over another. And she sent me this and I was like, oh, I'll read it. I like, you know, Cheryl Strayed's work. And oh my gosh, I have never had such an immediate, intense reaction to anything. It was exactly what I wanted, needed to read in this moment in my life. It was so impactful. The writing is beautiful. It features a poem in it, which I really loved as well. But it just, I sat there and I like cried. I I just, it hit me right in the core. So thank you to the person that sent it. For anyone that's sort of wondering what choice to make in life or, you know, one version of their life versus another sliding doors, I think it would really be meaningful. Oh my goodness. I, you linked it in the outline and I, I already opened it to read immediately when we get off the Zoom. Yeah, I actually printed it out and I'm going to put it in a scrapbook. That's how much I liked it. I love that. Yeah, it's really wonderful. What about reading? What have you been reading? So I read The Summer Place, which I really loved. It read to me like a TV show because it was so like twisty and juicy and there's so many different characters and I feel like everyone will have one character that they sort of relate to. It was really fun to read. And then last night I started reading The Measure by Nikki Ehrlich. Have you heard of this? I've been seeing the cover everywhere. Was it a book club pick for, for one of the yes like celebrity book clubs? It was. I forget which one. But um, it's about basically the world wakes up one day and everyone has a box on their doorstep. And in each box is a string. 
And the length of the string correlates to the length of your life. Oh. So obviously it causes all sorts of things, but it's already making me think so much about <laughs> life in a big way, but it's also just a page turner. So haven't finished it, but I have high hopes. Okay. What about you? So I finished Killers of a Certain Age by Deanna Rayborn, which I was reading last week. I loved it. It was so well done. It was so funny. It was so unexpected. I adored it. So this is the one that's about four 60-year-old assassins. This comes out in September. So it comes out September 6th, I believe. And just it surprised me so much and delighted me so much. I'm really looking forward to reading this one. Loved that. And then I am currently in the middle of The Summer Place, and I'm also really enjoying it. I'm kind of laughing at myself because in addition to being overly ambitious about how much I thought I would write, I also brought six books on this vacation, of which after five days, I've read half of one. See, this is what happened to me, too. I barely got through one. So but I think, you know, that's okay. That's okay. Enjoy your time with your yeah. people. Yeah. But if you're looking for something to read, as Jennifer Weiner endorsed in our interview, this month for our book club, we are reading You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty by Akwiki Ameze. And this book is a romance, but it's so different than every other romance I've ever read. It's about a woman dealing with grief after her husband died very young. After five years, she's deciding to get back into the dating pool. She is kind of casually dating this guy goes home with him to, he's from a Caribbean island. It's unnamed. I took it to be Jamaica. And uh, she ends up falling in love with his father. I think this this book is going to be such a good discussion book. I've already seen the Facebook group. Some people love it. Some people hate it. I think there's a ton to discuss. So we're going to be talking about that in two weeks. So pick up a copy and read along with us. And you can follow us on Instagram at Bad on Paper Podcast. You can also join the Facebook group. You can find me on Instagram at Olivia Mentor. And I'm on Instagram at Becca M. Freeman. Bye. One second. Jake is listening to Shania Twain on full blast. Hold on. Jake. One second. I don't know why. Okay, can you turn down the Shania Twain?